together. Thank you for getting out on a cold night to come and worship God and to be an encouragement to us each other as we, uh, as we strive to grow closer to God and grow closer to one another as we grow, grow closer to God and be the group that God would have us to be. What would be some of the identifiers that people could point to in determining that this church is the right church? If you had to list some identifying characteristics of, like, of the church like you read about in the Bible, what would be some of those characteristics? If I were to give you a survey or give you a blank sheet of paper and say, write the things that you think would define or didn't recently about that, and so read about those things, are what would be on that list? I know you had a lesson recently about that, and so maybe some of those things are top of your mind as to what would be identifying characteristics of a church like the one you read about in the Bible. Would it be the organization of the church? The fact that we have elders or pastors, they're called in the New Testament, that are leading the church, if we had those, if we were to that point. Or that we had deacons. Or that we had no central organization. The organization of the church, would that be some of those identifying factors that you'd put on the list? They should be. What about the worship of the church? Would it be that we have a cappella music because that's the music you read about in the Bible? Would that be on your list? Would it be that we partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week? Would it be that we have uh, preaching and prayer like we read about in the New Testament? Would those things be on your list? They should be. What about the name of the church? The fact that we don't identify ourselves by any human names. That we're not followers of any human. We're not Lutherans. We're not Wesleyans. But that we're Christians. Would that be on your list? What about the work of the church? Would it be on your list that we are authorized in the work that God has authorized the church to be engaged in? Evangelism, edification, and benevolence towards those who are saints. Would that be on your list? Would the absence of things that the churches around us are engaged in be on your list, that we don't uh, engage in matters that are social or recreational because we don't see churches in the New Testament doing that? We see that being delegated and relegated to the home in the New Testament. Would that be on your list of things that would identify this church as being one that is right? Those should be on your list. I'll tell you, there's something that would probably be missing from the list of everyone here But it's something that Jesus, as to what would be an identifying mark of this church. But it's something that Jesus said should be on our list. And it's from the verse that that Ben just read for us. Jesus said in Luke 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men shall know that you are my disciples, if you have love one another one to another. Jesus says that needs to be on your list. That we love each other. And not just a superficial, oh, I love you kind of love, but a sincere, life-changing love. And Jesus set the high watermark, didn't he? We're to love each other as he loved us. Jesus places an incredibly high priority on love. He says it is a primary identifier of how someone would know who's following Christ and who is not. And yet, again, if I were to take a survey of what are some identifying marks that the South Franklin Church is, a church like you read about in the New Testament, 
chances are this might be off the list. And that's concerning. Now, I'm sure nobody here would argue, well, we don't have to have love. That's why I left it off the list, because it's really not that important. No, we wouldn't argue that. But maybe it's not on our list because it's not a top priority for us. Or maybe we don't realize how important it is. You know, I'm afraid sometimes people begin to think that love is just one of those denominational topics. That is sort of just a touchy-feely, ooh, well, that's not true. That's a perversion of love to think that, uh, that it's just something that is ooey-gooey and it isn't important. Or there's still others who would say, well, if we focus on love and we talk about how much we ought to love each other, that's going to just lead to a permissive attitude where we just let anything go denomination or doctrinally and, 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 and morality, that, that we just would overlook any errors and we would just love each other and say we love each other too much to condemn error or false teaching. And that's a perversion of love. But whatever the reason that we might not have enough focus on love, I want to spend some time tonight looking at what Jesus said would be an identifying mark of this church. And if you wanted to go to a passage to find out how love ought to look here at South Franklin, probably the first place you'd want to go is 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 has a lot of, of the characteristics of love. And we ought to spend a lot of time studying 1 Corinthians 13. But tonight, we're not going to study 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to study Romans chapter 12. You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 and look at it there. I'll have it on the screen the whole time, but that's a pretty small type. But if you want to open your Bibles to, 1, to Romans chapter 12, we're going to spend our whole time there tonight. We won't look at any other verses. So we'll make it easy on you. You won't wear out the spine of your Bible. Just open it up to one spot, and we'll be there all night. Love is mentioned in Romans chapter, chapter 12, beginning of verse 9. Let's read it together. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Not slothful, continuing fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them with per which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Do not be wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. A lot of things for us to learn and glean from this passage. And let's spend a little bit of time here looking at that tonight. Love, according to Romans chapter 12, will cause us to, verse 9, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. That's the King James wording, and um, I, I doubt anybody has used the word dissimulation in the last six to eight months. Dissimulation means hypocrisy. 
Love has to be without hypocrisy. Right here at the start of our passage, we see that love is going to dictate how we live our life. This immediately squelches that idea of permissiveness that people are worried about when we talk about love, doesn't it? The idea that, well, you just love each other, you just let anything go. No, Paul immediately says, if you're going to have the love that you need to have, it has to be without hypocrisy. Your life has to be genuine. You can't be having this sin that you're just overlooking or this sin that you're hiding. No, love has to be without hypocrisy. Love demands purity. If we're going to truly love our brethren like we should, we have to be living lives of purity, striving to be free from sin. Why is that? Why do I need to get sin out of my Think of you like I should. Because sin hurts others, doesn't it? Think of all the hurt that you've caused other people by the sin in your life. We've caused people hurt, haven't we? By the way that we lived our life. Maybe we gossiped about them. Maybe we, as we talked this morning, we had that, that, um, that uh, passion of anger and we didn't control it. And we flew off the handle. And we said things that we can't take back now that hurt people to the core because we lost our temper and we didn't control our tongue. The list could be, go on and on and on about how we hurt other people when we sinned. When we sin against our brethren, we don't love them like we should. And the world can't tell that we are His disciples when we don't treat each other like we should. But it goes farther than that. When we don't live like we should, we're not the proper example that we should be to our brethren. Period. You name the sin, whatever the sin may be, when you don't live like you should, it harms your example to others. You might say, well, I have my flaws, but I can be an encouragement to my brethren in areas where I don't have my flaws. Sure, I've got this sin over here, but the rest of my life can be an example and encouragement to my brethren. That'll be okay. Really? Well, what about the guy who's a murderer? He's got a real itchy trigger finger. You know, he's just go, flying off the handle, killing people all over the place. Would you say, well, he's got a problem. But look at the rest of his life. Boy, he's an encouragement to me. I really look up to him. But no, the fact that he's a murderer just negates his influence completely, right? What about the guy who's a drunkard? He just can't stay off the bottle. And he's just in the gutter all the time. But boy, he's got a lot of other good characteristics. He sure is kind and friendly every time you see him. He's really an encouragement. Is it? No. The fact he's a drunkard just wipes it all out, doesn't it? I don't want to tell you it's that way with every sin. What about the guy who is abusive to his wife and his kids? Well, he's got a problem. But boy, he's really a good guy everywhere else. No. What about the lady who is a gossip? And she's just keeping the phone lines red hot with her gossip. But she's really got a lot of other good characteristics. I'm looking up to her. She's encouraging me. No. Sin harms your influence. Whenever there's sin in our life, it damages our influence in some way. And if we want to be the best possible influence we can be on someone, it necessitates that we abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. And so if we say that we love someone and teach others that we should love others, while we're engaged in these sins that we won't get out of our lives, we're, not, we're being hypocritical and we don't love each other 
like we should. Until we live pure lives that are completely dedicated to the Lord, I'll tell you, we don't love others like we should. It's harming our love for each other. Let's go on and look at verse 10. Verse 10 says that we need to be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. I tell you, if we're going to love each other like we should, we're going to put others first and ourselves last. This is fundamental. If we're going to love each other like we should, we're going to have to put others first. We're going to have to prefer one another, put ourselves last. The problem is that we live in a society that does nothing but to promote you to think of yourself. Modern media is continually blasting and bombarding you with advertising that's centered around you, about your needs, about your wants, about your desires, and how they can get you to think that these products are good for you. You deserve this. You deserve that new diamond ring. You deserve that new fancy car. Think about how you'll look driving down the road in that car. Think about how a trip to Island X will make you happy. How you need more and more stuff. We're told repeatedly that you need to look out for number one. And social media, do we need to even talk about that? How social media, you got to get out there and blast out there how wonderful the trip is that you're on or how intelligent your kids are. And, and by the way, they just got voted best looking in their, in their class. And, and, and my family's perfect and we've got all this stuff. Got to promote yourself. Look out for number one. Modern psychology keeps the problem going. By telling us that you need to think only about yourself. Psychologists say if you're unhappy in your marriage, you need to make yourself happy. Get a divorce. You need to do what makes you happy, regardless of what it may do to others. Look out for number one. And psychologists tell us that if you're not happy or if you're depressed, then maybe it's just because you don't think enough of yourself and you need to start raising your ego up. and That'll make you happy. Think about yourself. And school systems have jumped on the bandwagon now. Children are told over and over again that you've got to think highly of yourself. And we've even modified our grading scale now so that nobody gets a bad grade. And you can't answer a math problem any way you want to answer it, and you're still good. That's great. Everybody's wonderful. Lift everybody up. Yet this is all in the face of what the Bible teaches us about humility. Many verses, besides verse 10, could be cited that teach ourselves. Think about how our relationships in the church and with others would change if we truly esteemed them higher. How many arguments would there be in business meetings if we truly esteemed each other higher? How many times would we complain about sister so-and-so when she asks for help with her kids? How many times would we look down our noses, a brother or sister so-and-so, for a decision of judgment that was made? How many times 
would we think that we're better than somebody else if we truly had this attitude? Until we truly prefer others. I'll tell you, we don't love each other like we should. And the world doesn't have this characteristic that Jesus said we need to have so others would know that we're his disciples. As we go on in Romans chapter 12, look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. As we've already noted from just so far in Romans chapter 12, that if we're going to love each other like we need to, it's going to be a lot of hard work. And we're going to need to pray that we can be the kind of person that we can be so that we can love others like we should. It's going to require wisdom to know how to treat each other in a loving manner. And it isn't going to be easy. If it was easy to love each other like we should, we wouldn't need as many verses in the Bible that tell us about loving each other, would we? We wouldn't have to have so much teaching on it. And if it was easy, we wouldn't need to pray for help. But Romans 12 says we need to be instant in prayer in the King James Version. Other versions might say constant in prayer or continuing in prayer. And we need to be constant in prayer for ourselves, that we can be the kind of people that God wants us to be so we can love others like we should. We need to be praying for ourselves. We also need to be praying for others. We need to be continuing, continuously praying for others because in our last point, we're going to esteem others higher, right? We're going to put others first. And so we ought to be concerned about their needs as we go to God in prayer. If we love each other like we should, we will. We'll be praying for others. We'll be praying for their health. We'll be praying for the health of their family members and their loved ones. We'll be praying for their job, for their well-being. We'll be praying for that. But more importantly, we'll be praying for others' spiritual well-being as well. Do we pray for others' spiritual well-being? Do you think about others in the church and realize maybe some struggles that they're going through or some difficulties that they're going through? Do you pray for them? Do you think about them and pray to them, pray to God for them? Mr. So-and-so slipping back into the world. Maybe they haven't been regular in their attendance. Maybe you're some seeing some things in their life that are troubling and concerning. Maybe you see the love of the world creeping back into their lives and you're concerned about them. What do you do? What's your first reaction? Do you wring your hands and say, oh no, that looks bad. I'm afraid that we're losing him or her. I'm afraid they're headed back into the world. Isn't that terrible? Do you maybe talk to someone else and say, have you noticed what I'm noticing about so-and-so? Isn't that terrible? You think it's all over and, and, it's, and it's a done deal? Or is the first thing you think about how to pray for him or her? How to pray that they might be strengthened? Is that the first thing you think about? It ought to be, right? If we're continuing instant in prayer, if we're constant in prayer, we ought to be praying for our brethren. Instead of waiting till well, it's all over and they're gone, now we might pray for them. The church has to announce, well, we're going to have to identify them as an unfaithful brother or sister. Well, we'll pray for them then. No, we ought to be praying for them now. We need to be praying for each other. We need to be praying for each other all the time. Spend some time thinking about your brother or your sister and pray for them. Maybe you can't sleep one night and you're tossing and turning. Why not say a prayer? 
And go down your li the list. I like to think about my brethren as where they sit in the building. I can go down from front to back and left to right, and I can, co I can cover everybody. It's pretty easy here. Spend some time praying for each other. You know what each other is struggling with. We're close enough to know what our challenges are. Would you spend a little time praying for your brethren? We need to be loving each other enough to be praying for them. And if we will, the world will be able to tell that we're Christ's disciples. Next, as we go on to Romans chapter 12, look at verse 13. Distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. There's two activities here that I think we could summarize in one word, and that is serve. We need to be serving one another. Do you spend time considering how you can serve your brethren? You should. Again, this is contrary to how the world views relationship with others. The world views relationships with others as to how can they help me. You ever known someone who was really into networking? They were really in, in the business world, maybe into networking. Why do people do that? Why do people have their business cards ready? They go to these various events to shake hands and press. Why do they do that? Why are they into networking? Is that guy doing that? Because he's looking for people in the business world that he can help. I don't have enough people to help. I'm going to this mixer or whatever this is. because, And I got my business cards ready because maybe there's another guy I can help here. No. They're doing that because they want to find people who can help them. And sadly, that isn't much different than how people view the church sometimes. As we view the church as a group of people that are here to help me. That look at all these people that are here to help me and serve me. Yet the scriptures over and over again tell us we need to be looking for opportunities to help each other. Ah, no, that's not me. I'm not like that. I'm not looking for people to help me. Really? Then what are you doing for your brethren? Are you looking for areas to serve? Do you view this group as a group of people who all have needs that you can help meet? We need to be looking for opportunities to serve. And if you don't see opportunities to serve, even in this group, verse 13 gives us one way that we can serve. It says that we need to be given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. We've talked about this before. Hospitality. And maybe it's inviting folks into our house who we need to have company with. Maybe it's serving their needs in some other way. But are we given to serving others like we should and like we can? We need to be given to hospitality. We need to be distributing to the necessity of the saints. We need to, in one word, be serving. And are we doing that? And before we go on, we have to pause to make one obvious point. If our brethren are going to be serving others like they need to be, then we're going to have to allow them to serve us. This means that we're going to have to be willing to let someone else do something for us. And that's not the American way. Let somebody do something for me. No, I got this. I'll handle it myself. Listen, brethren, our brethren need to be willing to serve us. And when they offer, sometimes we just need to let them do that. We, many years ago, before we had kids, Nikki, I think, wanted to have some of the elderly women from the 
congregation over for a lunch on a Sunday afternoon. And so she started calling around. And she got the old squirrely response from some folks. One lady said, you know, I really appreciate you offering to have us over for lunch. She said, but I've really got a lot of sewing I've got to get to. I'm not going to be able to come because I've got too much sewing I've got to get done. You know, when the sewing has to get done, it has to get done. That's a, that's a, that's a fire, you know. You've got to take care of that. It's sort of like the sink overflowing or something, you know, you're sewing. I think she said what she was saying is, I don't want to take you up on your offer to serve me. And maybe there's some other reasons that we don't understand. But that has been repeated over and over again, I'm afraid. When someone is trying to serve you, we, have to, we ought to let them do it. And so maybe, you know, you got sick kids and someone offers, could I bring you a meal? No, 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 don't bring me a meal. Maybe you ought to just say, that'd be nice. I'll let you do that. You're, allow someone else to serve. We need to be serving one another. We need to make sure that we're letting others do what they need to do. Not taking advantage of folks. Not saying you need to do this for me. But when someone offers to do something for it, let's, let's let them do that so that they can enjoy the benefit of serving that God would have them to enjoy. Verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. The instructions of this verse, I think, can be wrapped up in one word, and that is to care. We need to be caring for one another. When was the last time that you did what this verse said? When was the last time that you were happy for another's blessings? What about when brother so-and-so got the big promotion at work? And you figured there was probably a pretty hefty raise that went along with that. Did you rejoice with him? Were you happy? Or were you secretly jealous? Did you think, well, he doesn't deserve that? Ah, he's just a big shot. Ah, when was I deserve a raise? He's, and he's getting all the good stuff. Do you think that? What about sister so-and-so? When, what's her name's son excelled in athletics or academics? Were you happy? Did you rejoice? Or were you jealous? Did you think, th- secretly think, well, my kids are better than hers? Ah, she must just be promoting her kids. My kids are better than that. Did you? Re- what? A- when was the last time that you wept with someone? What about the brother who's got all kinds of problems with his family? All kinds of trouble and turmoil. Did you weep with him? Or did you just sort of avoid him because he brings, him, brings you down and makes you depressed? What about the elderly person who has all kinds of health problems and is going through a difficult time? Did you weep with her? Or again, did you avoid her because, uh, I don't know, sort of makes me feel weird to be around her. Are we fulfilling the commands of this verse? I tell you, we need to be concerned about others' lives. And maybe it's just the simple things that are insignificant to us. They don't really matter to us, but matter to brother or sister so-and-so. Maybe we need to show some concern. And maybe uh, it's sort of silly that he's all worked up about this or that, but he's worked up about this or that. Why don't we show some concern? We need to be concerned. And it is so easy to show that concern now, right? 
You don't have to send a telegram. You don't have to get a Pony Express. You can poke out a little message on your phone in about 10 seconds. Just say, hey, I'm thinking about you. How's it going today? Show some concern. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And then, beginning in verse 19, in verse 14, in verse 14, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Drop down to verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Lots of stuff in these verses. I can't summarize it. Summarize it with five. And that is be willing to be wronged. If we love others like we should, we're going to have to be willing to be wronged by them. And our society says that if you've been wronged by someone, then the gloves can come off. You have the license to just destroy and obliterate them. If they do you wrong, then let them have it. One good turn deserves another. And you may even hear somebody say this, well, I know this is wrong, or I normally wouldn't do this, but you don't know what they've done. If we love others like we should, brethren, we're going to want the best for them. Even when they've done us wrong, we would never avenge ourselves, we would never cause them harm, regardless of how they've treated us. Sadly, though, many Christians don't have this type of love for their brethren. If a brother or sister does them wrong, they're immediately at odds with them. They're done. Want nothing to do with them. They did me wrong. They did me dirty. I'm done. Sign me out. I'm done. And, look for, and they look for ways to pay them back and get even with them. We get all out of shape when someone does us wrong. Paul says we need to be willing to be done wrong. And not only do we get bent out of shape when somebody does us wrong, we get bent out of shape if somebody doesn't do something for us that we think they ought to do for us. I was sick as a dog last week, and she never called to check on me. I had all this going on, and nobody sent me one letter, one card. They never brought me any food. I can't believe how bad they treated me. I'm done with them. Are we willing to suffer wrong from our brethren? And it seems very ironic that we'd have to suffer wrong from our brethren, but it only makes sense, doesn't it? Because our brethren are human, and they're going to make mistakes. And they're going to do things that harm us and hurt our feelings. And they're going to slide us when they should have known that we had a problem and they could have helped. They're not going to realize that. They're going to make mistakes. And we're going to have to be willing to suffer wrong from them because they're dealing with me and I'm a human and I'm going to do the same thing. If we love each other like we should, we're going to be willing to, be suffer, to suffer wrong from our brethren. What kind of relationships would we have in the church if we weren't willing to suffer wrong? Would we be able to have any relationship with anyone? Because we're all going to, from time to time, hurt each other's feelings, un unfortunately, and make mistakes. 
we're going to have to be willing to suffer wrong. In verse 16, verse 16 says, Be of one mind toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. We can summarize verse 16, simply be humble. All the things mentioned in verse 16 require one common trait, and that is humility. Are we humble? Do you strive to be of one mind, like it says in verse 16? Or do you think that your mind, or in other words, opinion, is better than your brother's? Do you think that you have a better opinion in matters of finances than your brother? I don't know why he bought that new car. I don't know why he bought that brand of car to start with. And then he paid way too much for it. And he's doing the wrong thing. Everything financially he does is wrong. He ought to do like me. He ought to drive a Chevy instead of a Ford. Ah, what a stupid guy. Am I striving for one mind? Am I showing humility? Because you don't send him to that school. And you don't let him play on that sports team. And you don't live in that neighborhood. They're making all the wrong decisions. If it was me, what I would do, Am I showing humility? Am I being wise in my own conceits? We could go on and on and on. Being of the same mind is, this, is important in matters of judgment in what the church does. Who are we going to have for a gospel meeting? What times are we going to meet? How are we going to advertise? Who's going to clean the building? On and on it goes. And every one of us have an opinion about any one of those subjects. And I can't be wise in my own conceits. I can't be haughty and think my way is the best and everybody else is just a bunch of goobs. I've got to be humble if I'm going to have the love that God wants me to have. And I want to tell you, this idea of being of the same mind is not something that's just magical. I think sometimes we think it's just magical that we can have peace and harmony in the church, we can all be of one mind if we just happen to get the right people in the church. If we just happen to get everybody in the, the church that's all level-headed, and they all think like me, and they are all you know, just willing to go along with my ideas, then we could be of one mind. But if, we got, if you got this real difficult guy, then pff, party's over. We're not going to have this. We're not going to be able to have a one mind. We're not going to be able to be in unity in matters of judgment. Simply not so. It's a command. Regardless of the makeup of the church, for us to be of one mind. And everyone here is going to have different opinion about something. We have to be humble enough to submit in areas of judgment. Are you being humble? And we have to condescend to men of lowest state. That means I can't be haughty. That means when there's someone who's struggling, I've got to be humble. I don't think I'm better than someone else. I've got to be humble. And we can't be wise in our own conceits. You think that you're too wise to take instruction from your brethren? Imagine him trying to teach me about that. 
Imagine her giving me advice about that. We've got to be humble, brethren, if we're going to love like we should. And finally tonight, verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you live peaceably with all men, finally we have to be at peace. And if we did all of the things that Romans chapter 12 is talking about here, don't you think we would be at peace? But it's important for us to understand that we each have an individual responsibility to the peace of this congregation. It takes only one of us to not live like we should in regards to these verses to destroy the peace of this church. Each of us have a responsibility to help establish peace and preserve peace here at South Franklin. It is a responsibility that each one of us bears. Unfortunately, though, we've probably experienced the harm and the damage that can be done by one person not being committed to peace. And the harm is far-reaching, isn't it? Harm to the brethren in the congregation, harm to the congregation's influence in the community, and the world around us does not realize that we're disciples of Christ because we're fighting and arguing and fussing with one another. The, extent of this, the, the peace of this congregation, to some extent, is the responsibility of all of us. And let me say one more thing. We've got a lot of young eyes and young ears here that are looking to the grown-ups to act like grown-ups. There are a lot of ears that were once young and eyes that were once young that are now old that want nothing to do with the Lord's church because when they were young eyes and young ears, they watched the grown-ups acting like opportunity to jump and run and fussing and fighting all the time. And as soon as they got the opportunity to jump and run, they did jump and run. We can't afford that. We have to be modeling Christ-like behavior as we deal with one another. Jesus said, the way that we love each other will show the world around us that we are his disciples. If we're going to, want to love each other like we should, we're going to have to live like we should. We're going to have to put others first and ourselves last. We're going to have to be praying, serving, caring, there are going to be times when we're slighted, when we're wronged, and we're going to have to be willing to accept that. We're going to have to be humble. We're going to have to strive to be at peace. hope the things that we said tonight have been encouraging to you as we strive to make this group better. We have great love for one another here, but it can be better, can't it? And we can grow, and we can be more and more like Christ would have us to be. Is there any way that we could help you spiritually tonight? If so, let us know while we stand and sing.